ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr Stephen Child about asthma, an adolescent and adult asthma update. Stephen is a Canadian trained general physician with a respiratory medicine interest who immigrated to New Zealand in 1991. Initially working in Dargaville, he then moved to Auckland DHB where he is a general physician. Clinically, he has an interest in asthma and general internal medicine with a strong passion for medical education. Stephen is the immediate past chair of the NZMA and a current member of the Medical Council. He also works privately in internal medicine and respiratory diseases in Auckland. Welcome, Stephen. Good afternoon. So today we're talking about the new asthma guidelines. Asthma guidelines have changed in New Zealand. We now have the 2020 Asthma and Respiratory Foundation of New Zealand Adult and Adolescent Guidelines. Stephen, I wonder if you could tell our listeners about the major changes and the rationale behind these changes, please. Sure, happy to do so, Louise. need to start at the beginning, if I may, just by mentioning that I am from Canada originally, and it's quite funny. I've given talks on asthma for a long time uh, until I was finally corrected and told the correct pronunciation in New Zealand is asthma, and I always say asthma. Um, so you'll probably see me intertwine in this conversation and use different terms, but my f- forgiveness, please, for the North American terms of it. Asthma really has been fairly stable. I mean, for 30 to 50 years, basically, there hasn't been much that's really changed. And so for many of the clinicians that um, trained you know, in the 1960s, 70s, or in my case, in the 1980s and so on, it's a topic that most people are going to say, well, honestly, there hasn't been much new, really. I think the only change really in the last 10 years, 10 to 15 years maybe now, is two things. Um, One is the common language now is that actually short-acting beta agonists, something like salbutamol or what GSK's version was, was Ventolin, is now considered bad for you, essentially. So in other words, just using salbutamol or a short-acting beta-2 agonist might increase your mortality increases the basement membrane thickening and increases mucus gland production, which is some of the pathophysiology we see with asthma. So despite it being a sort of a mainstay of treatment for 30 or 40 years, the modern way is to try and avoid it, use it as a sort of a last resort. And that would be the key message that's come out now in these new guidelines. Stephen, it's really important to accurately assess control and severity at every point of contact with our patients. It's been suggested in these new guidelines that we use the asthma control test at each contact. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, I mean, the most important thing is to make sure we have the diagnosis right with asthma. If I'm just going to step back a little bit, uh, remember what we're talking about when we're talking about asthma is a, a patient who presents with wheezing uh, or an obstructive airways disease. And classically, we've been taught that asthma is a, a reversible airway obstruction. Uh, often many of us taught that it had an allergic uh, component to it, and, and it was often eosinophilic, was the, the cells that were mediating the inflammation. And probably over the last 20 years, what has changed is we've started to identify that, yes, that is one phenotype of asthma, um, but a lot of asthma is actually neutrophil predominant rather than eosinophil predominant. And similarly, a lot of COPD is actually eosinophilic driven rather than neutrophilic driven as well. So in the respiratory world, many people are really using the terms eosinophilic airways disease and non-eosinophilic airways disease really in a way rather than asthma and COPD as such. Then when it comes down to the treatment of it as well, the other way we're trying to look at it is we're trying to look at it like something like hypertension, for example. So 
Asthma is a chronic disease in which there is a persistent inflammation of the small airways that causes people to wheeze. Now, there's lots of things that will cause inflammation of the small airways. And so there's clinics in the asthma clinics in the UK, for example, six to 10% of the patients that present to their difficult asthma clinics in the UK don't actually have asthma. So we can get the diagnosis wrong. So the important thing that all doctors need to remember is when you hear someone who is wheezing, ask yourself, is it both lungs that are wheezing or is it just one lung that is wheezing? Is it multiple notes or is it just a single note that might talk about an airway obstruction? If it's multiple notes that you're hearing in both lungs, then the body person is telling you that all of their small tubes, their, all of their bronchioles are all inflamed. So you actually have a bronchiolitis, an inflammation of the bronchioles. And there's lots of different possibilities for that. Infections can cause bronchiolitis. Asthma can cause bronchiolitis. Some drugs can cause bronchiolitis. Heart failure can cause bronchiolitis, cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, et cetera, et cetera. So the first point I just want to mention is that all that wheezes is not asthma. When you hear wheeze, think the inflammation is in the bronchioles. Why is the bronchioles inflamed? But then when I said about it's like hypertension nowadays in that we know that people with asthma have a low-grade amount of inflammation in their airways persisting even when they don't have symptoms. There was a study done out of Japan in which they bronchoscoped a lot of asthmatics that would had very mild asthma, rarely ever used their, their salbutamol. In fact, probably couldn't remember when they last used their salbutamol kind of thing. They got bronchial biopsies and 28% of them actually still had inflammation in their airways. So there is like an iceberg of inflammation in the lungs of someone with asthma. And so the primary treatment is to reduce that iceberg of inflammation, even though the patient themselves may not notice any of it or have any symptoms. So that's why I say it's similar to high blood pressure in that you're trying to convince a patient to take some medications that are going to give them a better long-term outlook, 5, 10, 20 years, but they may or may not notice any difference today whether they take their medication or not. So there's a, there's a mainstay underlying inflammation that must be treated in asthma and not just the symptoms that they present to you with. And that's why so we're using something like the asthma control test. So the asthma control test is just some basic questions that a patient can fill out when they're in the waiting room even as an, trying to get an assessment of how much inflammation is going on in their lungs, not just how much their asthma is impacting on their life. That's important as well, of course, with the increasing move to patient-centric care, their symptoms, are, we're taught, are the most important thing. Well, they're probably equal to you treating the inflammation underneath their lungs that they may or may not be complaining about. So talking now, Stephen, about reliever therapy, you've mentioned there are big changes in the recommendations of reliever therapies. I wonder if you can talk us through uh, the rationale for the air therapy, so the anti-inflammatory reliever therapy. You've mentioned a little bit about this, and you've also said that Saba shouldn't be used alone. So can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. Well, as I've just outlined, there's two components to treating someone with asthma. Is First is you want to treat the inflammation that they're having in their lungs that they may or may not know about. And two is you're trying to actually treat their symptoms. And so we've always talked about maintenance therapy and reliever therapy or preventative therapy. And so that was always steroids or 
uh, anti-leukotrienes or those kind of medications, chromalin, uh, glycolate, etc. So the anti-inflammatories have always been the maintenance therapy, and then some bronchodilators have always been the reliever therapy. And so there's always been a sort of a two-pronged approach to it. But more recently, we've now developed combination medications, so in which both can be in the same puffer. And so the first one to come out was a Astra pharmaceutical drug called Simbacort, which was a combination of budesonide, an inhaled steroid, and formoterol, which is a long-acting beta agonist. And the reason why this medication could be used in a different way is because for formoterol, it doesn't have a flat dose response curve. In other words, the more formoterol you give, the more bronchodilation you give. So you can continue to stack doses on top of each other to maximize the bronchodilation. And it also has a quick onset of action, which the other long-acting beta agonists currently available in New Zealand and, and around most of the world initially didn't have that. So Astra had a slight jump on this market of trying to use this combination medication as the only medication. And so what they started to do is they started to do trials in which you would take uh, asthmatic patients and you would divide them into two groups. One group would basically be told, take your preventer in the morning and take your preventer in the evening. That'll control your inflammation. And then if you feel a little bit wheezy, use your short-acting bronchodilator to try and relieve some of your symptoms. That's kind of been the mainstay of treatment. And that group was compared to a group that says, take your combined reliever and preventer in the morning, take your combined reliever and preventer in the evening. And if you feel a little bit wheezy, help yourself and try a few more doses of that combined therapy. And early starting, I think 2006, really, one of the earliest studies showed that actually doing it that way, you seem to get less exacerbations of asthma, better control of asthma, arguably, and ironically, at a slightly lower dose. Uh, of steroid, which was a little bit confusing at first. Now, the other pharmaceutical companies obviously hit back and said, no, 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 you weren't actually getting better control of asthma. Um, that's why you didn't use the asthma control test. What you were getting is reduced exacerbations because they were just using their reliever more. Um, and so controversy sort of uh, waxed and waned from about 2006 till about, say, 2014, 2015-ish, um, when increasingly the studies are coming out repeatedly showing that, no, it turns out that if you use your single inhaler, both for maintenance and reliever, you get the control of the inflammation that you need with the, the steroid, and you get the bronchodilation you need. Now, to me, just common sense-wise, that seems to make sense if for no other reason than adherence and compliance. You know, so if you think that most patients are adherent with chronic medications at around 30 to 40% adherence rate, then for the regime that says, take your preventer in the morning and the evening, take your reliever if you get more short of breath, if you think that there may be half of them don't bother taking their preventer, then suddenly they're left taking their reliever only, which is exactly what we've shown to actually worsen asthma. Whereas on the other hand, with this treatment, the only puffer they have in the entire house is a combined reliever and a preventer. You know that every time they're giving themselves a shot, they're giving themselves some anti-inflammatory therapy at the same time, which logically makes common sense to me as the best treatment for asthma. And that is what has been added now to the guidelines in June 2020 as really the mainstay of treatment. Thanks, Stephen. Just 
to clarify, there's only one inhaler that we can use in those guidelines. Yes, there is. So there's only one combination medication at the moment, which is it has to be formoterol rather than salmeterol as your long-acting beta agonist. The steroid can probably fiddle around and change and there's different steroids that can be used. But the only uh, medication that has been licensed for this therapy in New Zealand at the moment is the Astra Pharmaceutical product called Symbacort. And it's even the Symbacort 200 micrograms of budesonide, six micrograms of formoterol dosing in the turbuhaler even, although they do have a meter dose inhaler Van Air, which is licensed for this type of therapy in Australia. It doesn't have uh, indications for that in New Zealand. So at the moment, it is only the Simbacort uh, smart medication uh, that is able to be used for this. So tubuhalers will be new for lots of people. They're used to the MDIs, they're used to their spaces, but tubuhalers will be new. And there will be some people who just can't get it together with using a tubuhaler. So you've mentioned Vanier, but that would be off license if we're using it. Is there an MDI alternative that we can use or not? No, it is a simple answer. No, at the moment. I, I will just make a little bit of comment. I mean, um, one of my uh, most unsatisfactory talks and, and research is when I've tried to delve into all the different inhaler devices and the pros and cons of each one of their devices and so on and everything that's out there. And, and essentially, there's sort of two. There's the dry powder devices of some type. And then there's something that has a gas that propels it to your lungs. It, it would be how I would routinely point out. Actually, if you look at the meter dose inhalers, um, the meter dose inhalers, the technique is extremely important. Depending on the technique, you can vary anywhere from 3% of the dose inhaled to 26% of the dose inhaled. And also studies have shown that when they looked at um, uh, doctors in Canada, actually, and they looked at their ability to do perfect technique, less than a third of doctors can even demonstrate the perfect technique when using a meter dose inhaler. So remember what you need to do is you need to shake the inhaler you need to expel the bad air to begin with. Then you actually need to initiate the inspiration just before you fire the meter dose inhaler. And then you need to take a slow, well, fairly slow-ish deep breath in, not a fast breath in or else it'll all hit the back of your throat. So it's a moderate inspiratory effort up to TLC and then hold your breath for 10 seconds. Now, I've just talked about adherence and saying that you know many patients may say they like their meter dose inhaler better because they know they get the dose and it puffs into the back of their throat. But if you actually look at the drug delivery, most of the dry powder devices, be they a turbuhaler, a discaler, any inhaler, does generally, on average, give a better drug delivery of dosing. So perhaps we need to get better with our teaching and encourage more. Adherence, asthma education, and non-pharmaceutical management of asthma is still the absolute mainstay of all of these treatments. So since the guidelines have come out, Stephen, I've tried to swap a number of my patients over. And the ones that I've had the most resistance from are my exercise-induced asthma patients. They're quite happy with the MDIs. They think they work for them. They can't see a reason to change. Have you got any tips or tricks or discussion points that we could have with these patients? Sure. So there's two components to exercise-induced bronchospasm. Um, one is that when you exercise, you overcome your body's ability to humidify and warm the air that is getting into your lungs. And so colder, drier air can get into the lungs. And in some people, that can trigger a bronchospasm. And so you can actually have exercise-induced bronchospasm and not have classically what you and I would consider asthma. And in fact, interesting study done for, um, I believe, uh, the Olympics in 1980-something or other, 
um, in which they tested a lot of the Olympic athletes and they discovered a lot of exercise-induced bronchospasm that was completely unknown to these elite athletes before that. So it's actually quite a, a common condition to have. But then there's also, so that's a, a person who has fairly normal lungs who when the cold, dry air hits it, stimulates the bronchospasm. And then there's the other group that actually has some ongoing inflammation from asthma all the time. So already has some slight narrowing of their airways. And then that exercise just tips them over the edge, if you like. Take uh, many of the, the doctors back to their early physics days, because physics was a prerequisite for medicine for many of us, basically. And you may remember something called, um, I think it's Pousseau's Law. I don't know how to pronounce that. P-O-U-S-E-I-L-L-E or something or other. And it's for the res a formula for resistance through flow through a tube. And the resistance equation says that the length of the tube, the viscosity of what's going through the tube, divided by the radius of the tube to the exponential power of four. And the only reason I'm mentioning that is it only takes a tiny little change in the radius or diameter of a tube to increase the resistance exponentially to the level of four. So what I say to a lot of my patients with exercise-induced bronchospasm is the more you can control that underlying inflammation in the first place, the less likely you are to have symptoms when you then start to exercise. So make sure, step one, your asthma is under really good control and you have a correct amount of anti-inflammatories on board uh, and steroids. Secondly, try to have warm, humidified air, not cold, dry air hitting your airways. And then the, the bronchodilator is only trying to sort of prevent that bronchospasm. And actually, any long-acting beta agonist given 30 minutes prior to exercise has just as much protection as a short-acting beta agonist given 5 to 10 minutes before exercise. So I understand that they feel they still need to take it just before, but their the lab is going to give them the exact same benefit, but they just need to take it a little bit earlier. The added benefit, of course, is in kids. And that if they take it before they go to school, they can be protected for most of the school day kind of thing, which makes things a little bit easier. The last thing I'll just say about exercise-induced bronchospasm as well is the use of the refractory period. Um, and I simplistically think of it, I mean, who knows whether the pathophysiology is correct, but essentially what happens with exercise-induced bronchospasm is you start exercising. And the granules release their inflammatory chemicals that cause you to have your bronchospasm. But then once they're released, it takes kind of six to eight hours for them to actually form some new chemicals to put in the granules to, to get inflamed. So actually, after an episode of exercise-induced bronchospasm, you're actually refractory for about six to eight hours afterwards. And that's why what a lot of elite athletes do that have exercise-induced bronchospasm is they go on the court or they go on the field, you know, an hour before the game kind of thing. And they do some tough shuttle runs back and forth for sort of six to 10 minutes. They bring on their asthma, exercise-induced asthma. Then they take the beta-2 agonist uh, and then they're good for the rest of the game because they're during for their refractory period. So the use of the refractory period is another option for people who have bad exercise-induced bronchospasm. Great. Thank you for that. And I suppose just going back and you've, you just mentioned LABAs, but they always need to be used in combination, don't they? Yes. Uh, I mean, this is an um, interesting little story. I'm not sure if your listeners would be interested in a bit of a history, but New Zealand should be proud of their history when it comes to uh, beta agonist use and asthma. Uh, because one of the first uh, flags was, was, was put up the flagpole in 1981 by uh, a researcher at the University of Auckland, suggesting that maybe there's an increased mortality in patients that are using beta-2 agonists 
short-acting beta-2 agonists with asthma. That was then followed up by Julian Crane, a Kiwi who was working out of Wellington, and Malcolm Sears, I believe, who was a Canadian working down in Dunedin at the time. Um, who then followed it up with more publication. And that's where we got the article saying that phenoterol, remember the old Beratech, did have a particular increased mortality in patients with asthma. That then got picked up around the world. Uh, and the question was, is it just phenoterol or is there a class effect? Is it all short-acting beta agonists? And then the Saskatchewan Health Study in Canada, where I'm from, actually confirmed that yes, it does appear that the more often you use a short-acting beta agonist, the higher your mortality. And that's independently when you're controlling for their asthma severity as well. So the message has got out there that uh, short-acting beta agonist overuse can be bad for you and can potentially increase your mortality. And so that was the 1980s and 1990s. And imagine how the pharmaceutical companies felt then when they were coming along with a long-acting beta agonist and they're thinking, oh my word, Am I just going to uh, start a bigger problem? And so a lot of, lot of intense uh, investigation looking at, is there an increased mortality effect when using LABAs as well? And the study that uh, caused the most concern was a GSK study actually based out of the US and California in which they did a multicenter study uh, with the use of salmeterol, a long-acting beta agonist. And it was a poorly designed study, but essentially what they did is they took a bunch of asthmatic patients. Uh, half of them, they said, you just stay on usual care. The other half, they added in salmeterol. And then they had to stop the study actually prematurely because they had an increased deaths in the group that had been using salmeterol. Um, there's interesting stories when you read about that, actually, because um, GSK got in a lot of trouble for that um, and how long it took them to release that information. Information, and there's a, there's a whole backstory to that trial, actually. Um, but when they re-examined the data, they found that that increased mortality signal only occurred in the patients that were taking the long-acting acetaminophen and weren't taking an inhaled steroid. In the group that was regularly taking their inhaled steroid, there didn't seem to be that increased mortality signal. So it's from that study, really, and a few others uh, that, are, that the word has come out and the language is unopposed labotherapy is bad, is the simple language there. So in a way, the asthma guidelines that we've just said in June are aligning with that. I mean, one of the take-home messages that you're already starting to hear is just bronchodilating the airways is not good for you if you have asthma. You're totally missing the point about the underlying inflammation, number one. And number two, you might actually make be, be making things worse. Great, thank you for clarifying that for us. So moving on now to maintenance therapy, what are our options here now? Yeah, well, well again, the, the, the positive story about New Zealand, um, so Richard Beasley down in Wellington, Bob Hancock's in, in Waikato, um, they're big names in asthma treatment now. And again, we should be very proud of their contribution to the asthma literature. Um, and Richard Beasley has probably been one of the uh, greatest researchers in this area and shown that we used to say you must take your maintenance and you could wean down on your maintenance until you were on a minimum maintenance therapy but you always had to take your maintenance therapy was our language. Well, um, Richard took it the next step and a, and a variety of studies have confirmed this as well. And um, in that you can now just use your maintenance and your reliever, your Simbacort, for example, or your air therapy, PRN. So it can be your step one can be if you're feeling a little bit wheezy occasionally, just take this combined therapy when you're feeling wheezy only. 
So that's the next change in the guidelines. Instead of step one always being start with a minimum, first remember it used to be short acting beta agonists, PRN only. If using more than three times a week or wakening up at night, then add in an inhaled steroid. Well, now we already have the inhaled steroid combined with the bronchodilator. You can just start with PRN of the combination medication is now step one. So at what point do we step up? <laughs> well, and this is where the, the asthma control test comes in, because this is where, you know, the critics would argue if we suddenly start saying you can just use your inhaler PRN and you don't need regular maintenance therapy. And if you've just finished telling us, Dr. Child, that the patients are only going to use it when they're feeling symptomatic. Um, then you're going to be missing a lot of poor asthma control because you just didn't pick it up. They were only taking it when they were wheezy. So that's why the asthma control test is in there as well. And so the answer to when you should step it up, when you should step it up is when their asthma is showing poor control through their asthma control test. And you can see that their score is going up or they're getting worse, basically. And what does that next step look like? There's, there's two things in that. It, there's the when and there's the what, uh, if you like, or when and the how. The other thing to remember, if you take a patient who is uh, inhaled steroid naive and you measure their peak flow and you get a baseline peak flow for them, and then you start them on inhaled corticosteroids, you will see a rise in their peak flow, understandably, as their inflammation starts to resolve. But that rise in peak flow may take up to six months to reach a new equilibrium. Okay, and that makes sense to me. I mean, they say that the surface area of the lungs, if you cut the lungs open and laid them flat, they basically have the surface area of a tennis court. So it makes total sense to me that if I have a little bit of pus on my tennis court, it's going to take three or six months to clear everything up. So the anti-inflammatory therapies in asthma work over three to six months. Therefore, if you're titrating down titrate down every three to six months, basically, if the patient's well, half the dose, and then wait for another three to six months, then half the dose every three to six months. If you're initiating to therapy, also remember that it may take time to improve. So that's the when. And then the question you asked was about the how. So simple, it, it gets really simple now if you're actually using a combined inhaler. Step one is just use your combined inhaler PRN. Step two is use it one puff morning, one puff night, and PRN. And step two is use two puffs morning, two puffs night, and PRN, basically. So it becomes starts to become really easy, really. It's just how many puffs a day you're taking of that single inhaler therapy. And what's the maximum dosing a patient can take in a day? We're using the 206. We may be using one puff morning and night. If they're using it at PRN, what's the ceiling dose? Sure. Well, the ceiling dose primarily, uh, see, for steroids, the ceiling dose correlates with the benefit risk. So the higher the dose of steroid they're getting, the more likely they are to have side effects versus the benefit that they're getting. So that's a different equation. But the risk is the beta-2 agonists. Um, now, it looks like up to 96 micrograms a day of fromoterol is safe, maybe even higher. But to be on the safe aspect, uh, they list as no more than 96 micrograms of uh, formoterol in a day, but 12 puffs maximum, which I think is 72 micrograms of formoterol, is the safety limit that we've put onto it. So you say to your patients, no more than 12 total puffs per day, no more than 72 micrograms of formoterol per day. Personally, I'm conservative. I'm getting older and more conservative the older I get. And so generally what I estimate, say to my patients, if you're using it more than eight times today, you need to come back and see me. 
Um, so I lower the threshold even further. But officially, the guidelines are a maximum of 12 puffs per day of the 206 formulation. So before we step up and step down, I always think about treatable traits and non-pharmacological measures. Can you talk us through what we should be thinking about here on review? Sure. The first non-pharmacological measure, as I mentioned earlier, is adherence uh, to medications. Not only actually taking them, but actually taking them correctly. Uh, Peter Barnes, who is probably one of the sort of the doyens of of asthma research, has uh, I think he's the number one researcher for volume of articles of any medical researcher in the world. Really, recently came out to New Zealand and gave a talk, uh, and. He was talking about steroid-resistant asthma, uh, and he was talking about a clinic in the UK that they work at in which they see patients who have come in, and these are patients who are steroid-dependent on 20 milligrams or more daily of prednisone and have had an intensive care unit admission for their asthma. These are the difficult-to-treat asthma patients that they're getting. And he got one of his fellows to do a study in which he gave these patients triamcinolone, intramuscular, long-acting steroid intramuscularly. And what he discovered is about 95% of the patients given the intramuscular steroid achieved asthma control, despite the fact that they were supposedly on 20 to 40 milligrams a day of prednisone already and had multiple ICU admissions. He also looked at their average uh, serum cortisols and found that the majority of them still had a serum cortisol in the normal range. And so this is to quote Peter Barnes when he stood on the on the stage at this talk I was listening to. He said, "I'm not sure, but I don't think there's such a thing as steroid induced as- steroid resistant asthma. I think there's just patients who lie." And I think that was getting a little bit um, crude and a little bit critical, but I'm just making the telling the story and making the point that step one is really being 100% sure that the adherence is somewhere close to normal. That's even more important if later we get on to talk about the monoclonal antibodies, because the monoclonal antibodies are designed for patients who have failed all the other treatments. And to me, it would be a massive shame if we started prescribing these medications to patients who just weren't actually taking the medications we'd already prescribed for them. So I can't stress enough, adherence, adherence, adherence. If there is some way of getting dose counting, looking at the prescriptions that have been picked up from by the pharmacy, making sure they match what you've prescribed. So adherence, adherence, adherence is message one, two, three, four, and five in answer to your question. Then when we're talking about treatable traits, um, uh, some, some are more treatable than others, um, obesity. Obesity can cause asthma. Um, so uh, fat cells can produce uh, adipokines. Uh, so cytokines that actually induce inflammation in asthma. So obesity will worsen asthma. Reflux, it's slightly controversial, but it can worsen asthma. If you put distilled acid into the distal esophagus, it will induce bronchospasm. Uh, Post-nasal drip and sinusitis can induce bronchospasm and worsen the condition as well. Um, Heart failure, as mentioned before, can worsen asthma and can worsen bronchospasm and so on. Um, So Really, I would say sinusitis, reflux, obesity, and looking for alternative diagnoses uh, would all be two, three, and four after you've done adherence, one, two, three, four, five. Fantastic. Thank you. Totally agree with that. And I suppose the thing that I see a lot of is um, sinusitis where, again, looking at inhaler technique or device technique and people are squirting it up and it's going down their throat. It's not actually you're not using the crossover technique, they're not using they're not doing it properly. And once you review their technique and teach them properly, 
uh, the sinusitis goes away and the asthma improves. So getting devices brought into the clinic, I think, is crucial. Just another little point on adherence, actually, and again, it was a Richard Beasley study. He was looking at um, uh, Simbacort versus Ceratide in asthmatics, basically, uh, in this one study. And what he did is he put a dose counter on the medications. And so he recruited these patients and they knew that he, they had a dose counter on the medication that was reporting how often they took the medications, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then he ran the study and it was obviously comparing uh, Simbacort versus a non-Simbacort treatment. One of the take-homes of the study is he looked at his hospital exacerbations. People ended up in hospital. Someone in that study had used their Simbacort 63 times in the 24 hours prior to going to hospital. In the other arm, someone had used their Ventolin 94 times in the 24 hours before they went into, a, into the hospital. And I can't remember his figures, but if you looked at the compliance figures, it was something like about 40 to 50% adherence with it. This is people who are motivated enough to be in a study, chosen to be in a study, a dose counter, and knew they were being dose counted. And even they couldn't hit what you would expect. So, I mean, I think the most important thing of patients that are uh, doctors that are treating patients with asthma is, is have a, a healthy skepticism to make sure that what you have prescribed is actually getting into the lungs as step one. So we've done our treatable traits. We've thought about the non-pharmacological measures. Our patient is still not controlled. We're thinking of referring on. At what point should we refer on? It's tricky because there's also the asthma COPD overlap that occurs in some patients. So generally, if they have a significant smoking history, if they're over the age of 40, and if spirometry shows they have a fixed airway obstruction, in other words, they have an FEV1 less than 70% predicted, then those patients you possibly need to be thinking of with a slight COPDE type lens to it, really, and might want to look at some other different types of therapy. Similarly, it's always a good point to go back and make sure is the diagnosis right in the first place. The next step is to try and get a measure of asthma control. And, and we've talked about the asthma control test, which is a symptom test that you can use. There's also, um, if they have eosinophilia, you can use eosinophilia as a way of measuring your, their control. Now, eosinophils, remember, are a subtype of white cells. There's three basically ways that you can measure eosinophilia surrogate markers. One is blood eosinophilia, and just literally look back at their last 10 or 15 full blood counts and see what their eosinophil count was. Two is eosinophils break down the amino acid arginine to make a gas, NO, and that gas is excreted, is exhaled in the breath. And there are machines that will measure your fractional excretion of nitric oxide or nit nitric or nitrous. I can just, I must look that up. I can't remember of NO anyway. So you can do a pheno measurement of your exhaled breath concentrate. And then you can do spu induced sputum eosinophils where you look for the eosinophils in the sputum itself. And so those are some, if I, if I had a patient who had poor control, I would say, have I got, if they did have eosinophilia, have I controlled their eosinophilia? So if I had some marker of it, that's some objective measurement. Am I achieving it or not achieving it um, as well? The other thing is peak flow variability, just using a peak flow diary as well. So asthmatics usually will have more than 8 to 10% diurnal variation, the difference between morning and evening peak flow in a day whereas non-asthmatics, it'll be less than 10%. So the jagged up and downness of a peak flow diary can also give you a hint about, does this person have good control or poor control? 
So if by using one of those methods, you're convinced that the patient still has poor control, you've put them on the maximum treatment from the guidelines, and you're pretty confident, as confident you can be that they're actually taking it, and you're sure of the diagnosis, you've done a chest x-ray, if you felt a chest x-ray was at least necessary, done some spirometry, et cetera, um, then when to refer really comes down to A, if there been any hospital admissions, uh, B, is it still interfering with their activities of daily living? Um, or C, do you need to do you just want a second opinion and, and look and see what are the options? And with the new monoclonal antibodies coming on board, that's when you would be thinking about it. What would we expect our patients to have added on from a specialist? Yeah, uh, so you're making it harder for us. The better the primary care doctors get, the harder the secondary care has, doctors have to work as well. Um, First of all, most of the secondary care specialists will start from the beginning and will review that they're happy with the diagnosis. Secondly, they will go through exactly what we've just talked about, about looking for treatable traits and secondary adherence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The third trick up their sleeve that they may sometimes play with um, is uh, the use of low-dose prednisone and macrolide antibiotics. And macrolide antibiotics... Um, have an anti-inflammatory effect. There is one theory of asthma that chlamydia may induce some uh, uh, asthmatic exacerbations. And then there's the treatment of original something called Japanese panbronchiolitis um, that was discovered to respond to pan, um, macrolide antibiotics such that increasingly there is becoming a body of literature to say, if you have a small, a small airway or pan bronchiolitis, if you have inflammation of your bronchioles and you can't find any other cause for it, then sometimes a prolonged four to six week course of a low-dose prednisone and a low-dose macrolide antibiotic may induce an anti-inflammatory response and assist those patients. So you may see some secondary specialists putting them on that kind of uh, regime as an option. And then, of course, the last thing is uh, the newer monoclonal antibodies, basically, which I'm not sure how far you want to chat about those today and where we're at. But that's what's, what, what's the newest thing. We'll get patients eventually on them, and it would be good to know what we need to do from our end. Essentially, um, remember the drug uh, Montelicast? Uh, Montelicast, or I think it's sold as Singulair. Um, interesting story there, by the way, Montelicast was actually discovered by a Kiwi, a woman called Jill Evans, when she was a researcher in Montreal, hence the word Monty in the Montelicast, and that she got to name it, basically. Um, and so Montelicast is a leukotriene D4 antagonist. So in all the soup of cytokines that are released in the inflammatory response of asthma, it blocks leukotriene D4. And therefore, as you would expect, in the correct small subgroup of asthmatic patients in which D4 is driving a lot of their inflammation, it can be effective. So salicylate-induced asthma, particularly maybe in some people, exercise-induced bronchospasm, maybe in some people kind of thing. So there's a small group of patients in which that'll respond quite nicely and is an option. Well, in the same kind of way now, the monoclonal antibodies have been targeting other components of that soup. So we have an anti-IgE antibody. We have an anti-IL-5 antibody, which is a, uh, a cytokine that induces a basically. 
and we have anti-IL-13 antibodies, uh, which is doing the exact sort of thing. Um, so you're, you're basically looking at monoclonal antibodies, which are trying to knock out one small part of the inflammatory reaction. And as I've just said about um, Montelicast, as you can imagine, some people can respond to it really, really well, and some people don't respond to it really, really well, and it's picking those right people. So uh, what does the GP need to look for? Essentially, they have to have a very high IgE for the anti-IgE drug to work, and they have to have eosinophils for the anti-eosinophil uh, drugs to work, basically. So if you have a patient who's ticked all the other boxes, still has poor control, has an elevated IgE or an elevated eosinophil count that you just can't get on top of, and they're having multiple hospital exacerbations, et cetera, uh, or steroid requiring exacerbations, then a lung specialist may offer that uh, into, the, into the options. Just thinking about llamas, is there a role for llamas in these people? Yes, thank you for, for bringing that up. Actually, that's the third change, if you like, with the new guidelines that came out in uh, June uh, for asthma treatment. So remember, llamas are muscarinic antagonists. So the first one that we all know about is ipotropium bromide. And ipotropium bromide or atrovent um, is a short-acting muscarinic agonist. And then we have llamas, which are long-acting muscarinic antagonists. And you'd expect Remember, we've given ipotropium bromide in asthma for a long time. Duovent is still a, a puffer that a lot of GPs are still prescribing. And yes, it's a bronchodilator because it's mimicking the parasympathetic nervous system, and so it's causing bronchodilation in that way. So it would make sense that a long-acting muscarinic agonist would also bronchodilate patients. Um, it probably hasn't been given the uh, initial attention it deserves because of studies done really in the 1990s, really, in which they showed that if you maximally bronchodilate someone with a beta-2 agonist, if you open up the airways and have them on total intravenous beta-2 agonist dosing, then adding epitropium muscarinic agonist on top doesn't help, basically. So it can be synergistic if you've got a lower dose of beta-2 agonist, but at maximum dose of beta-2 agonist, it probably doesn't add to too much. And so that's why it got much more attention in COPD than it did in the uh, asthma population. Of course, now that LAMAs are forming the mainstay of COPD treatment, people are re-looking at the, its use in asthma. Theoretically, it would make sense that it would work. And sure enough, you're now starting to see some studies that show that it might add some additional bronchodilation. And so now it's been added to the latest guidelines in June um, as last resort. That said, it's not yet an approved therapy in New Zealand, so it would be off-label as well. So that would be a specialist-initiated medication? It would be a specialist going off-label. Someone has to go off-piece. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wonder if we could just touch now on the patient with the acute exacerbation, use of uh, short-acting beta agonist virus spacer and oral steroids have been the cornerstone of care for many years. Is this the same? Yes and no. Uh, yeah, for the most part, the treatment is exactly the same. I, I say yes and no because nebulizers, uh, probably for about 10 or 15 years, have already been starting to get a bad name kind of thing in that we've always argued that if you take a large volume spacer that has been primed correctly, and you give six, four to six doses loaded into a large volume spacer, you will deliver the exact same beta-2 agonist dose as you will using a nebulizer. So nebulizers are not necessary and are just as effective using a large volume nebulizer. Now, we've known that for a long time, but that message has been a slow sell. As you can imagine with COVID, it's been a rapid sell because no one's supposed to nebulize anything at the moment. 
Um, so nebulizers it, it finally have been whole, completely gone for touch, really, uh, and shouldn't be used in the acute setting uh, of an asthma exacerbation. Rather, it's a large volume spacer and using uh, beta, short-acting beta-2 agonists. And yes, steroids still make the mainstay of treatment. Something to remember, though, as well about the severity of asthma. Um, interesting studies have looked at patients who have had asthma exacerbations and ended up in hospital, asthma exacerbations that have ended up in an intensive care unit, and asthma exacerbations that have ended up in death. And they've looked back at how often those people were using their beta-2 agonist or their Ventolin, salbutamols and so on, um, before that hospital admission. And what they found is from something like 15% of the people who died to 37% of people who got admitted to hospital had been using their salbutamol less than once weekly in the months leading up to their attack. In other words, sudden asthma is just that. It can be asthma that is completely quiet, quiescent, and benign, and suddenly you're in an intensive care unit or you're very, very sick with it as well. Um, in a not insignificant amount uh, of time, in numbers of time. So, you know, it's always good to have good control of asthma and anti-inflammatory therapy, but it can come out of the, almost out of the blue in, in many ways as well. I just wondered too, if you could clarify for our listeners, because it seems to be varying practices of steroid dosing. Some people give 40 milligrams for three days, other, others give a five to seven day treatment, they step up, uh, they do a decreasing dosing. What is the gold standard? What should we actually be doing? Who knows? I, I mean, there's so many different recipes that I, you know, that to me that means that they all work or don't work. Whatever, it doesn't really matter. I mean, there's a couple of principles basically that we just all need to remember. Remember, you must if you give more than two weeks of steroids, you must wean. You know, it can't stop cold turkey. Anything less than two weeks, you're probably okay be on the safe side. Anything less than 10 days, you can stop cold turkey. Anything more than two weeks, definitely wean. Message number one. Message number two, like we see with inhaled steroids, um, most of your bang for your buck comes from the steroids in the first place, basically. So you don't necessarily have to load up. Um, so is 60 better than 40? Probably not. Um, you know, Once you're into 40 and above, it's probably all the same thing, really, especially for asthma. But your side effects increase. Message number three is they have side effects. Um, and don't underestimate the insomnia. And it can occur in about a third of patients that are on 20 milligrams of prednisone will have insomnia. So it can have significant impacts on their life. I believe the current guidelines for COPD exacerbations are 40 milligrams for five days, 20 milligrams for five days, and stop. That's one regime that you can use, but uh, I'd take your pick, basically. I suppose that the other fourth message I would get, remember, is our own body makes about seven and a half to 10 milligrams of prednisone a day-ish. So anything more than seven and a half milligrams of prednisone a day, and you've roughly turned your adrenals off, um, anything less than 7.5 milligrams prednisone, and roughly your adrenals are still having to contribute and come to the party. They can't go completely asleep yet. So your danger cutoff as well when you're weaning is when you go below the 7.5 kind of thing. So you can go pretty quick from 20 down to 10 or 40 down to 10. That's fine. But it's from the 10 below 7.5 that you look out. Perfect. Thank you. So our patients had an acute exacerbation. We've treated them with steroids, settled things down. What do we do with their um, maintenance therapy at this point? Yeah, so I, I 
draw a little iceberg for them in my practice, basically. And um, I sort of talk about, I don't talk about that Japanese study that I mentioned earlier, but what I point out is that there is an underlying degree of inflammation that is present all the time. So if someone's had a, an exacerbation severe enough to get to a hospital or to come to see you, et cetera, they're at the top of the iceberg. They're out of the water, basically, um, and you can see them. But underneath the water is all that huge amount of inflammation. And the diagram that I, I draw for my patients, and again, it doesn't have any evidential basis. It's more a sort of a story and a metaphor. But what I say is you can probably have 50% of your lungs inflamed and you wouldn't even know it. Then when you have about 60% of your lungs inflamed, the first symptom might be you just feel a bit tired. 70%, you might have a little bit of a cough. 80%, you might know when you're starting to wheeze and feel a little bit shorter breath. 90%, now you feel really shorter breath and you're coming to see me. So what we've done by putting you on prednisone or whatever we did to you in hospital is we've taken you down from the 90% down to the 70%, so you're feeling better now, but you still have that huge 70% of inflammation underneath your lungs that'll take three to six months for it to settle down. So I argue any patient that has had an exacerbation of asthma needs full-on anti-inflammatory treatment unchanged for the next six months, irrespective of what they say to me, basically, um, to get them to the lowest possible levels of inflammation that I can get them so that they're less likely to pop up the next time. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I don't know that we're as aggressive as we could be actually with that three to six month step up. Um, so that's a great point. Thank you. Yes, I, I personally would put someone on the, on the maintenance and, and reliever therapy, the air therapy. I'd put them on twice daily, two puffs in the morning, two puffs at night for the next six months. No questions asked, basically, if, I, if you've had to have a course of prednisone, even though you might feel better next week, that's the way we need to do it. Awesome. Thank you for that. A lot of information today. Thank you very much. Uh, just to conclude our podcast, please, what would your take-home messages be? I guess the take-home messages would be, number one, short-acting beta agonists are a sign of poor control and maybe worsening asthma and try to avoid. Try to see that if you're using a short-acting beta agonist in your asthma, it's kind of a failure. Take-home message number two, unopposed labotherapy in asthma is potentially dangerous and should not occur. Number three, measure the control of the asthma, not just the symptoms. Think that you are treating it like you're treating high blood pressure. You're trying to control the underlying inflammation, not just what the patient says to you. So use some kind of asthma control test uh, as your final marker. And message number four is beware the diagnosis. Make sure you're right on the diagnosis and look for the treatable traits and the other things that might be driving this. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time today, Stephen. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPT points, please log this on your dashboard. You'll find a list of resources that we've discussed in this podcast at our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for joining us today.